0: We're studying now Titus chapter 3 in Sin and Judgment. Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, Deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit." whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men but shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. We continue in studying sin and judgment from these chapters of the New Testament. We're studying this subject because this is an understudied subject, but a very important subject. It cannot be emphasized how much we must understand what sin is and the consequence of sin, which is judgment. If we don't judge sin rightly now, then we will be judged on the day of judgment for our inept and ignorant view of sin and even insidious view because most people don't like to think about sin, talk about sin, preach on sin, preach against sin, talk to one another about sin, admonish one another about sin. This is typical of most people and most people in churches. However, the Bible does not give us that leeway And even the New Testament does not give us that leeway. And in the case of some churches that clearly and expressly call themselves New Testament churches, they are not reading the New Testament carefully either. And this is another example, our chapter, Titus chapter 3. So what is sin? What is righteousness in this chapter? And what discernment and judgment should we have about it, lest we face the judgment of God? Titus 3 verse 1 begins by saying, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. He first says, Remind them. He's telling us what needs to happen. He's telling Titus, a pastor, not an apostle, but, an, but a pastor on the island of Crete, to remind his people. Why so? Because we forget. It's necessary to be reminded constantly because we are apt to forget. And when we are reminded, either by reading the Word of God or by somebody telling us what's in the Word of God, we should not scoff at them, we should not mock them, we should not chafe, we should not walk away, we should not shut our ears. But listen carefully when we are reminded. Peter tells us, 2 Peter chapter 1, 1, verses 12 to 15. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. Even though the Apostle Paul discipled Titus, and he is teaching Titus here, it's necessary for Titus to be reminded and for Titus to remind the people, in the local churches. And what is it? Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Chapter 3, verse 1, is equivalent to passages such as Romans 13, 1-7, where we are also reminded to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, why would the apostle be telling Titus when Titus is on the island of Crete, because the Cretans are notorious people. They are people of ill repute, and among them are some Jews, some Jews and Gentiles. And they are described in chapter 1 of Titus, Titus 1, verse 12, they are described like this. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is their character, a general description of who they are. But also, it may be that on this island, in their deceit and in their wild behavior, they are also revolutionaries, violent revolutionaries, wanting to shake off the yoke of the Romans. Jews wanted that in the land of Israel, And it's likely that other peoples scattered throughout the Roman Empire were seeking to do so. We know from history that that is the case. And that that may be the case here with the Cretans, that they wanted to do the same. But when we disobey the governing authorities, we must always decide, always determine whether disobedience in a particular case would be sin... Or not, When the governing authorities are doing their duty and keeping the peace, practicing justice, being civil, helping the common people, when they are doing that which is right, we shouldn't rebel against that. When they are practicing justice, punishing criminals, we should not rebel against that. But when they do the opposite, then, of course, rebellion is possible, such as, the slaves of the people of Israel in the land of Egypt, they rebelled. Such as, whenever the Hebrew midwives in the land of Egypt disobeyed the Pharaoh who said to murder all of the baby boys, then they rebelled. Such as Daniel, that's Acts chapter or Exodus chapter 1, 15 to 22. Daniel chapter 6, Daniel rebelled against an unjust, evil edict of the king, Daniel chapter 6, when it was prohibited to pray to any other god but the god Darius. Darius the king became a god at least by force for 30 days in Daniel 6. But Daniel didn't obey that. But in this case, Titus 3 verse 1, we're not talking about biblically lawful rebellion against the governing authorities, he's talking about whenever they're doing what's right, we shouldn't rebel against them when they do what's right, which requires us to practice discernment. And if we're not using discernment or judgment properly, we will be sinning against God and the governing authorities, even if they are pagans and idolaters. So that's why we must be Obedient and to be ready for every good deed. We shouldn't be rabble-rousers. We shouldn't be rioters. We should not be arsonists and thieves, thugs, gangsters, drug dealers. We shouldn't be like that. But ready for every good deed. Keeping peace in our society. Now verse 2. To malign no one. To malign. What does it mean to malign? To malign is equivalent, a synonym of it is to slander. To slander. Then we should ask, what does it mean to slander? To slander is to speak lies about somebody else. To speak lies or falsehoods, untruths about somebody else because you want to defame the character of somebody else. That's what it is. To malign is to slander. To slander is to speak falsehoods about somebody else. To malign is not to tell the truth. To malign is not being honest about a situation. Or saying something that is severe about somebody else. Or something that sounds harsh about somebody else. That is not malignancy, that is not to malign. If saying something negative or something that's true but unpleasant about somebody else is the same as to malign, then the Apostle Paul has contradicted himself and he's a big hypocrite. Why? Because in the same letter, in the same letter, he says in verse 3, all kinds of things about the way we used to be and the way many people still are. Many severe, strong, harsh statements and descriptions about how we used to be and how many people still are. Also, in verse 10 or or verse 9, he says, shun foolish controversies, so forth. We need to determine who is preaching foolish controversies and avoid him. Verse 10, reject a factious man, because a factious man is perverted, is sinning, and is self-condemned. Those are strong, harsh words, negative words. But he's not maligning the people. He's telling the truth about them. Telling the truth about someone else is not slander, and it is not to malign. That's not the same thing saying something false about somebody else is to malign him or to slander him. To be uncontentious, to be uncontentious or peaceable, peace-loving, peaceful towards others. Well, to be uncontentious also does not mean not contending, not standing for the truth. People will say, if we stand for the truth, we're being contentious. And the Bible says you're supposed to be uncontentious and peaceable. But it doesn't mean it the way they interpret it. They say uncontentious or peaceable means you never cross anybody. You never tell somebody he is sinning. You never tell somebody he needs to repent, which is not true. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us in verses 9 and following. We read 9 to 13, where he says things that are very contentious in the sense of contending for the faith, but not in the sense of troublemaking. Not in the sense of troublemaking. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this cause, for this reason, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the fake. He says in verse 11, they must be silenced. He says in verse 13, reprove them severely. So a pastor or a Christian who attempts to silence a false teacher A pastor who attempts to reprove severely a false teacher, a false brother, somebody saying something wrong and unbiblical, something sinful, something contrary to the gospel, he is not a contentious man. That's not what the apostle means here. He's not a man who loves to fight and quarrel. No, he's standing up for God The word of God, the things of God, the gospel of God, he's standing up for Christ, the name of Christ, he's standing up for the truth. Those who interpret verse 2 otherwise are making the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul contradict himself. We cannot do that. They do the same with gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Reproving severely, silencing those who oppose the truth is not being ungentle. And it is not lacking every consideration for all men. That's not the same thing. That's not what he's talking about. He is saying we ought to be loving, kind, gentle, soft-spoken in how we approach people And appeal to them to repent. Yes, he is saying that. But he's not saying, don't use harsh words. Don't use severe words. Do not rebuke. Do not call sin, sin. He's not saying anything like that. We have to describe it as it is. If he's a liar, he's a liar. If he's an evil beast, he's an evil beast. If he's a lazy glutton, he's a lazy glutton. If he's a rebel, he's a rebel. And so forth. We have to describe sin as it really is in order to help these people repent. And then verse 3, he puts us or helps us to have a humble attitude when we do approach people. Now, he's describing this humble attitude as we approach people in order that we might not be arrogant, conceited, proud as we approach them. That's why he says, verse 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves. Yes, we used to be foolish ourselves. They still are we used to be. So remember that when we approach them to confront their sins. We were disobedient. Disobedient to the Word of God. Disobedient to the will of God. They still are. Okay, we used to be. But when we used to be, how was it that we heard the truth? Who told us the truth? We were deceived. They are still deceived. So if they are deceived, then we have to think, how can we undeceive them? How can we shed light on them? How can we explain lies in contrast to truth? How can we compare honesty to deception and explain it to them with a humble spirit? Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, We were slaves of sin. Now we are slaves of God. They still are. So, as we approach them, how can we help them understand that they are still enslaved? Spending our life in malice and envy. Yes, malice. Approaching things, approaching people with evil intention. Envy. Another word for envy is evil jealousy. That is covetousness, greed. Envy means I see somebody else with something that I want, whether it's his personal traits, his skills, his position, his possessions, something he has, and we want that. And we will, by hook or crook, get what he has, and even better. Maybe, maybe even steal what he has. That should not be the case. No envy. We used to be that way. We shouldn't be that way anymore. Hateful. We were full of hate towards others and hating one another. We actually practice the hate. The hate resided within us, but we also practice it against people, against one another. Now this hate, he's not talking about hating falsehood, hating the false way, hating ourselves, despising our sin. He's not talking about hate like that. He's talking about unjust hate. How do we know he's not talking about just hate, righteous hatred? He's not talking about righteous hatred. Because in <laughs> Titus 1.16, he's preaching righteous hatred. In Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. The people who are hypocrites professing to know God, but their actions, their deeds deny God, these are the people who are detestable. What does detestable mean? Hateful people or hated people, loathsome people, loathsome to God and loathsome to the people of God. They are loathsome or hated people. God hates them, we hate them. We hate hypocrites also Luke 14 Luke 14 25 to 26 Luke 14 25 to 26 where we are to hate in a righteous sense Luke 14:25 now great multitudes were going along with him and he turned and said to them if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Our Lord means that we must hate the sin in these people and the sin even in ourselves. If we don't hate our own sins and the sins in others, we cannot be a disciple of Christ. So don't hate people unjustly hate people justly. Then what changed us? Verses 4 to 7 speaks of our transformation. What changed us? Verse 4, Titus 3, 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. The kindness of God it was God's kindness and his love for us when it appeared he saved us. This will remind us of Titus 2 verse 11. Titus 2:11 For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Titus 2:11 The grace of God or the kindness and love of God, appeared and saved us. It appeared to mankind. Here he means particularly the elect. He's not saying every person in the world is saved because God's grace or God's kindness, God's love has appeared. That's not his meaning. We saw that in Titus 2, 11-15, that that is not his meaning. Also, we notice it in Titus 3, 4-7, that that is not his meaning, because when this kindness and love of God appeared, he saved us, but he doesn't save every person. And he saves us in Christ, by the Spirit of Christ, in verses five to seven. Also, the letter itself is written For the, Titus 1.1 says, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Titus 1.1. It's written to the chosen of God who have the knowledge of the truth and who are living according to godliness because that's the intention. But that's not happening to every person in the world. Only it is happening... To the elect. They are the objects of God's kindness and love. And salvation. He saved us. We note that salvation is past tense for those who are truly saved. Salvation is past tense. <clears throat> Just as it is in Second Timothy one nine. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who has saved us and called us with the holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Who has saved us? Salvation, therefore, for those truly saved, is past tense. Currently, we are being saved, or we say, sanctified, progressively sanctified, we are being saved. And in the future, we will be saved in that we will attain glorification. Our future salvation, our future eternal life to the full is a day when we will be saved. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. Here, he's emphasizing the fact that we have been saved. And how did that happen? Now, this is for our assurance, contrary to free will theology that gives no assurance, because you cannot say definitively that you are saved forever. They can only say you are saved temporarily, but not saved forever. But here he's talking about eternal salvation. Verse 5, On what basis? Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Not deeds done in righteousness. Well, if we chose God by our free will, is that not a good deed? Yes. Is that not righteous? Yes. It's good, it's righteous if we were to choose God if indeed the Bible taught free will. But here he says... Not that. Others say that faith and repentance save us. But if that's the case, then that would be our righteousness. But he says not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. This excludes faith and repentance as deeds performed by free will. Others might say that when we are sprinkled as infants or adults, infantile sprinkling, also called pedobaptism. baptism That's a misnomer, but it's called pedobaptism. baptism Others say when we are immersed in water, when we are immersed after faith and after repentance, When we are immersed, then we are saved. However, verse 5 says, Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Infantile sprinkling or immersion or faith based on free will, any number of things, would be deeds done in righteousness. Yet the Apostle says, nothing we do in righteousness saved us. What saved us then? He says, verse 5, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. By regeneration and renewing, he's using synonyms to describe the work of the Holy Spirit to take The heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. That's what he's describing. Ezekiel 36, 26-27 Remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's what he's describing here. He calls it washing though. Why? Why is he calling it washing? And also verse 6 Whom he poured out We pour out water or pour out wine, but we don't pour out. um, So what is he pouring out? Is it literal water, literal washing with water? Those who believe in infantile sprinkling or pedo baptism say yes. It's the water. Those who believe in credo-baptism or immersion as an adult, after you believe, they say yes. We're talking about water, literal water. The water does it. The moment you are immersed in water, that's when you are saved. However, the very phrase contradicts those two interpretations. Yes, he says washing. Yes, in verse 6, he says pour out. But he's talking about the Holy Spirit who is invisible and who does a miraculous work John 6:63 6, It is the spirit who gives life It is the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life John chapter 3 verse 6 John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Verse 8. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So regeneration or being born, born again, born of the Spirit, that is what causes us to be saved according to Titus 3, 5, and 6. The Holy Spirit washes us, or the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. 3.4 says, God our Savior. 3.6 says, Jesus Christ our Savior, which means Christ is God our Savior as it was also said in Titus 2.13, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Then verse 7, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are justified by His grace. It is interesting that in verse 7, the apostle suppresses, the word faith. He eliminates or suppresses, he excludes the word faith. Not that faith has no place, but it's not central to his argument here. What is central to his argument? Grace. Grace is central because he's talking in verse 4 about God's kindness, his love, verse 5 his mercy and his washing of regeneration and renewing by the holy spirit whom he poured out verse 6 poured out upon us richly through jesus christ our savior and then verse 7 by his grace we are justified to be justified is to be declared righteous in christ declared righteous in Christ. Not that we are immediately 100% righteous, but we are legally speaking justified, legally speaking exonerated, legally speaking vindicated because of our position in (laughs) Christ. Romans chapter... Romans chapter 3... Verse 6. Romans 3 6. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 5 1. Romans 5 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. These verses make it plain that faith is not eliminated from the equation. It is a factor. But just as in Titus 3, he doesn't mention faith, in the same way, in Romans 11, he does not mention faith. Romans 11, 5 and 6. Romans 11, 5 and 6. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. How is it? It's by grace. If it's by grace, there is not a single work involved. Which is the same as Titus 3, 4 to 7. No work can be included. All must be excluded. So the faith of Romans 3, 26, the faith of Romans 5, verse 1, has to be a granted faith. Has to be the gift of faith. Has to be a gifted faith. Gifted by whom? God, That's what is brought together in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. And then, Titus 3.7, he says the result of it, that we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are inheritors of the hope of eternal life. Inheritors. When parents have children Do the children say this and that should be in the will and you better put this or that in the will? Whose will is expressed in the will? The parent's will, not the child's will. And so the parent here in this case is God. God the Father, He adopts us. God the Father is the one who determines what we inherit. And He is the one based on His will, solely His will. He brought us forth, as it were, by His will, James 1.18 says. And the same here, He brings us forth, makes us heirs of the hope of eternal life. When he says hope of eternal life, he doesn't mean it as we typically mean it in English. I hope you have a good day. I hope you have fun. I hope you have a good trip. I hope you have a safe trip. I hope things turn out well for you. That's not the way he means hope here. The way he means hope is a fixed hope, a certain hope, a hope of conviction, a hope of faith. That's the way he means it here. This hope of eternal life is not an uncertain way, but a certain way, such as Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He says, faith is the assurance, assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's the confidence we have. Keeping that in mind, this is what has truly happened to the elect, to true Christians. Keeping this in mind, that's why we are able to do the rest of. Titus 3, Titus 3, 8 to 11, and then the last paragraph, the last two paragraphs, Titus 3, 8 to 11. Because we have this confidence and this certainty of what God has already done to us, that's why he says, verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. We've come across this refrain. At points, when he says this is a trustworthy statement, he's talking about what he has just said. At other times, he's talking about what he's about to say. It's likely in this case, he's talking about what he has just said. And then he says, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. It's a trustworthy statement. So, the Apostle knows he's speaking the truth and he's bringing that truth to our attention that it is reliable, it's stable, it is the truth. It's the unwavering word of God. Because we know it is that, he says concerning these things, that is Titus 3, 1-7, to and even whatever he has said already from Titus 1-1. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, whatever he has already taught and reminded us, he says, I want you to speak confidently. Confidence. The confidence he means here is in humility based on the Word of God and the work of God in us. That's what he means by confidence. Confidence. It is in humility and based on the Word of God and the work of God. We clarify this point because whenever we speak with confidence, the false Christian world, false believers, and the world of unbelievers, they will accuse us of being arrogant. They will accuse us of being self-righteous. They will accuse us of being know-it-alls and perfect. All which are false accusations, all which are slanders against us and against the truth of God. That is not what's happening. They are arrogant. They are self-righteous. They are hypocritical. They think they're perfect because the moment we talk about sin, they say they don't have any sin. Let's see some examples of this. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 29. First, we'll see examples of true, humble confidence based on the Word of God and the work of God. Acts chapter 2, verse 29, Acts 2, 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us To this day, the Apostle Peter says, I may confidently say, and the death of David is recorded in the Bible. It is recorded in the Bible. Since the death of David is recorded in the Bible, in the book of 1 Kings, since the death of David is recorded, he can say he has confidence. Why? Based on the word of God. He can also say it based on historical testimony because he's alive and the tomb of David was there in Jerusalem and everybody could go there and see his tomb. They could witness with their eyes. They could tell David's tomb is right there. David was buried there. Everybody knows. So it's based on factual knowledge. That's why he can say, I may confidently say. And is Peter, therefore, because he's saying it based on the fact of history and because he's saying it on the fact of the word of God, is Peter being arrogant? No. The Old Testament teaches he died, 1 Kings chapter 2. History teaches he died, so he's not arrogant. Acts chapter 4. Another example, Acts chapter 4, Acts 4:13. 4, Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. <clears throat> now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Are Peter and John arrogant? No. They are speaking with confidence and their opponents are observing it. Luke tells us that the opponents of Peter and John observe it. And they are amazed. They marvel because the men were not formally educated or formally trained. No formal classrooms, formal degrees, formal diplomas, and no apprentices, no apprenticeship with those teachers and preachers of the day who were reputed. They weren't trained and they weren't educated in those ways. But what did they have? They had been with Jesus. In three and a half years of public ministry, They were well-educated and well-trained by our Lord. And that's why they had confidence. Now, false confidence. 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1. We read verses 6 and 7. 1 Timothy 1, 6 and 7. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions here is false confidence and false confidence is based on what based on lies based on what men teach not what the bible teaches so if they are making confident assertions about things that are, are on which they are ignorant because they don't understand them, then they are understanding things not on the basis of the true interpretation of Scripture, but on the false statements, false teachings, false traditions of men. They are the ones who are foolishly, wrongfully confident. We have to make that distinction. The Bible makes that distinction. And let not our critics determine whether we are humble or arrogant, but let the Word of God determine that. So what would be the result? If we confidently speak the truths that are in the Bible, and in particular the book of Titus, what would result? Titus 3.8, so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. What is our goal? Our goal is to be carefully engaging in good deeds because we have believed in God. We believed God, that is, we believed in the Word of God and in the incarnate Word of God, Christ, and if we believe in the incarnate Word of God, because of the Word of God, the written Word of God, we are believing God. We are believing His testimony. First John 5, 9-13. When we believe in the testimony born concerning His Son, we believe God. And if we don't, we are liars. But if we do believe God, What should be the outcome? What should be the fruit of true belief in God? Careful, meticulous, engagement in good deeds. Then we would be good and profitable for others. First in the church and those outside of the church. Otherwise we wouldn't. His goal in this letter, one of his goals, has been... To teach us definitively, clearly, concretely, what is good. He has emphasized good. Our verse, verse 8, Good deeds, these things are good and profitable for men. Chapter 3, verse 1, To be ready for every good deed. Chapter 3, verse 14, And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. Chapter 1, Titus 1, verse 8, Loving what is good. Titus 1, 16, Worthless for any good deed. Titus 2, verse 3, Teaching what is good. Titus 2, verse 7, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. And Titus two, fourteen. A people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We have to know the distinction between good and evil, sin and righteousness. Now, Titus 3, 9. Verse 9 tells us the opposite. If we are to proactively and positively practice verse 8, then the converse is verses 9 to 11. The opposite, the negative, is verses 9 to 11. Negative in the sense, not that it's sinful, but negative in that it's the opposite of verse 8. What is it? Shun or avoid foolish controversies genealogies strife disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. This is the opposite of good. In this case, it looks like more than it looks like it is quite evident verse 9 were to shun and also in verse 10 reject This is contrary to modern Christianity. Modern Christianity says God has unconditional love, so we need to have unconditional love. Modern Christianity says God accepts us as we are. Come as you are, modern Christianity says. Modern Christianity says, come just as I am, as the song says, just as I am without one plea, right? That's the way modern Christianity is. Modern Christianity says God always gives a second chance. Nobody is unredeemable. We need to pray for people no matter how reprobate and rebellious they are until the very end of their life. And even then, who knows, before their last breath, they might have prayed the prayer of repentance. So we cannot say for sure anybody went to hell. This is the way modern people think in church. But that's not the way the, the Apostle teaching us here. He says, shun, avoid the people promoting these foolish controversies and other things here, other sins. And in verse 10, reject a factious man, a factious man, a divisive man, a schismatic man, avoid him, get rid of him, don't have anything to do with him. An example of this within Titus is Titus 1, as we've already read. Titus 1, 12 to 16. Titus 1:12, 1, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, li- evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith not paying attention to jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth to the pure all things are pure but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure but both their mind and their conscience are defiled they profess to know god but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed another place second timothy 2 second timothy 2 16 to 18 2 Timothy 2:16 2, But avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and thus they upset the faith of some Titus 3, 10, and 11. We don't reject them immediately. It says in verses 10 and 11, after a first and second warning. Give them two warnings, then reject them. Warn them of their blasphemies. Warn them of their slanders. Warn them of their heresies. Warn them of their Factious beliefs. Warn them about how they are contradicting God's holy word. And they deserve the righteous condemnation of God. Tell them that they are sinning. Tell them that they are perverted. Tell them that they are self-condemned. Is that not what it says in 3.11? Knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. They have to know it. That's the warning we present. The first and second warning. You are condemned. Your own mouth is condemning you. That's why we say, or he says, self-condemned. Your own mouth is your worst enemy. Because it's revealing who you really are. You are self-condemned. So, reject. Avoid have nothing to do with those people anymore. That's what it says in the Bible. And there are many such verses in the Bible and in the pages of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5:13 Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Matthew 18:15 to 20 the third step, similar to this passage, the third step, and if he does not listen to the church, let him be to you like a Gentile and a tax collector. That's the third step of Matthew 18. Our final verses of Titus 3, three twelve to 14. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. The apostle sends these two men, Artemis and Tychicus. This is the only place where we read of Artemis, but we do read of Tychicus elsewhere in more than one place. But the most he is described is in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6, 21 to 22, this reliable messenger is described. 621 Ephesians. But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. And I have sent him to you For this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Tychicus is a beloved brother, a faithful minister. He is a reporter of everything, and he will comfort the hearts of the Ephesians. We assume, therefore, Artemis is also very reliable to be sent as a messenger. Verse 13. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. He says diligently. He returns in verse 14. He says, Let our people learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs to be diligent, not lazy, not well, why do I have to do this? Why did he ask me? Not like that, he says diligently, which means with eagerness, with excitement. And if we don't have that diligence or that excited spirit to help somebody, in this case, Zenos and Apollos on their way, that means that they're on a journey so that nothing is lacking for them. Make sure that they are well equipped as they embark on a journey. Wouldn't you want that to be the case for you? So do so for them. Remember Matthew 7.12. Therefore, whatever you you want others to do for you, do so for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Which is Matthew 7.12, a restatement of the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Zenos is only also mentioned here. He's called the lawyer. In what sense he was a lawyer, it may be he was a lawyer in the sense that he was of the Jewish law or that law of the law of Moses. Of the law of Moses. He m- might have been a Gentile, maybe a lawyer of, of civil law, but probably. Jewish law, a Jewish lawyer. He was familiar with uh, the scriptures of the Old Testament and especially the law of Moses. In Matthew chapter 23, Matthew, or no, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, 35, 22, 35, it says, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing him. Matthew 22, 35. He's called a lawyer. And your Bibles may have a footnote saying an expert in the Mosaic Law. The parallel to Matthew 22, 35 is Mark twelve. Mark twelve twenty-eight. And there it says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? So lawyer in one place, scribe in another place, meaning a lawyer or scribe of the Old Testament, and especially the law of Moses. Jesus actually predicted that there would be some scribes who converted. It says this in Matthew 23, 34. Matthew 23, 34. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. As for Apollos, Apollos was one expert in refutation. Just as the Apostle taught Titus to be an expert in refutation, to refute false teachers, Apollos was able to do so. We read of Apollos in Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18, verse 24, 24 to 28, Acts 18:24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately." And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. By his refutation, he encouraged the believers who were confused by powerfully refuting the Jews in public. So those who minister the word of God ought to be assisted, particularly, especially. Verse 14, Let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs that they may not be unfruitful. If we don't meet pressing needs, if we don't meet urgent needs. If we don't meet needs that come to our attention and get our attention and we just shirk it, we just shake it off and we say, oh, somebody else will do that. If we have that attitude, then we're not going to meet the unpressing needs, the unurgent needs. If we won't meet the urgent needs, we're not going to meet the unurgent needs. That's why he's saying here, we must meet pressing needs. Otherwise, we will be unfruitful. We're not going to meet the unpressing ones. Let somebody else take care of it. No, we should take care of it if we know about it. There should be some sense of urgency within us when we see a need. Then we will be engaging in good deeds. Now verse 15. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. All with me greet you, which also shows the unity and oneness of the faith that they want. They agree with with Paul and what he's writing here in Titus. They are of one mind and one spirit with the Apostle Paul. So they give a joint greeting. Further, greet those who love us in the faith. Greet those who love us in the faith. Is that not a qualified greeting? A qualified greeting. He's on the island of Crete. He's not saying, listen, There are some people, some of my enemies on the island of Crete, they heard about me and they hate me and they won't like you, but give them my greeting anyway and tell them I love them and I'm praying for them. He's not doing that. He says, greet those who love us in the faith. The particular special love is for the church, the visible saved church that meets and is respecting honoring, subjecting themselves to the pastoral role of Titus appointed by the Apostle Paul. And Paul, of course, appointed by Christ and God according to Titus 1, verse 1. These are the ones to whom he wishes grace. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.